peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Daniel 6, 1 to 23. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom stationed throughout the realm, and over them three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The administrators and satraps therefore kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom, but they could find no charge or corruption for he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. So the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, may King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, Anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that, as the law of the Medes and Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the written edict. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened towards Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So they approached the king and asked about his edict. Didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days, any person who petitions any God or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, as a law of the Medes and Persians, the order stands and is irrevocable. Then they replied to the king, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles, has ignored you, the king, and the edict you signed, for he prays three times a day. As soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. He set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. Then these men went together to the king and said to him, You know, your majesty, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke with the king, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. They haven't harmed me, for I was found innocent before him and also before you, your majesty. I have not done harm. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed. 
for he trusted in his God. This is the word of the Lord. Hear his word and to hear from him. Would you uh, pray with me? Uh, gracious Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your fatherness. Uh, thank you for redemption. Thank you for peace. Thank you, Father God, for your people. Thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts through your word. I ask, Father God, that you would allow me to decrease so that you would increase. And I pray, Father God, that you would meet us and manifest yourself here through your spirit as he mediates the presence of Jesus in our hearts and in our lives for your namesake and glory. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In the matchless, wonderful, victorious name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen. In the inner city, or in the hood as we call it, there is a, a phrase uh, that uh, I'm pretty familiar with, and, and most people who, who grew up in those areas is, is familiar with, and it's a phrase called the trap, all right? The trap. Uh, another way to say it is the trap house. Uh, and what the trap is, or the trap house, is a, a home or a house where drugs are sold. It's a, a place where uh, there are illegal activities that happen, and it's normally ran by what we call trap stars or rock stars. There are drug dealers, people who are uh, inappropriate, who are, are breaking the law in order to make a living. And the reason a trap is called the trap is because it's just that. It's a trap. It's a place where vulnerable people, where people who have addictions, where people who are hopeless, nihilistic, uh, go for comfort in, in, in drugs. And it's designed in such a way to keep people coming back. And so today, as we think about today's sermon, we've kind of uh, entitled the sermon, uh, Loyalty, a, a, a Trap Theology, uh, and it's playing off of that word, that term that many inner city people are used to, uh, the trap being a place of hopelessness, a place of brokenness, a place of addiction, a place of, a place of sadness. And whether or not you can identify with that uh, type of language, uh, we all know what it feels like to feel trapped. You may have never walked into a trap house, never heard trap music, never heard of a trap star, but you've probably felt trapped. And many of us in here today, we come in here before the Lord feeling trapped. Perhaps we feel trapped because of a relationship that we are in, whether it's a friendship or a marriage that seems to be going nowhere. Perhaps you feel trapped because of a career choice that you made, something you chose to study, and now you're in that field and you, you realize that you don't want to be in that field and you feel stuck. Perhaps you feel trapped because you've been praying and seeking the face of the Lord in a particular area of your life and it, it seems like heaven has closed its doors to you and God does not hear you. Perhaps you feel trapped because you have a cloud in your mind and you are wrestling with grief or depression or, or sadness. Perhaps you feel trapped because you are fighting an addiction or sin seems to, to be winning. And today what I hope to give us in this sermon uh, is, is a picture of a God who, who works uh, in and through his people 
when they often feel trapped. God is a God who delivers people from the trap. The book of, of the Bible is, is, a, is a picture of a God who is faithful to, to deliver people out of situations that seem destructive. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about Adam and Eve and how they felt trapped because of their sin as they were walking in guilt and condemnation, but God covered them with grace. The Bible tells of a man named Abraham and how he felt trapped as he went up a mountain to sacrifice his only son and how God delivered him by allowing a ram to be in the bush. Moses and the people of Israel felt trapped as they uh, were freed from Egypt and they found themselves with their, their back to the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his army coming in full speed to kill them. And God opened the Red Sea and allowed them to go on dry land. Oh, I wish I had time to tell you about how, how David felt trapped as Saul was, was chasing him in the wilderness because he, he saw that the Lord had anointed him to be king. Or had the time to tell you about Hannah and how God untrapped her from her, her grief by giving her a child. Or Esther and how he freed his people and her from, from genocide. God is a God who, who works uh, through his people and in the midst of his people to deliver them from, from traps. And if you are a believer here today, you know that he is able to deliver you from destruction because he came and got you when you were trapped and entangled in sin and he delivered you by the blood of Jesus. He justified you. He adopted you into his family and gave you a new song. And if there is ever a a story of the Bible that gives us a trap theology. If there's ever a story of the Bible that tells us that we can trust God in the midst of the trap, if there's a, ever a, a, a story in the Bible that, that tells us that we can be devoted in, in the midst of a situation that, that seems like is destructive, it is Daniel chapter 6. God here gives us a a trap theology. And the question is, why does Daniel feel trapped? Well, I'm glad you asked. In Daniel chapter 6, we learn that Daniel uh, feels trapped because he is a distinguished man. Look at your text. In verse 3, it says, Daniel distinguished himself above the administers, administrators and the satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit so the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The book of Daniel is absolutely fascinating because it is a story of a young boy who is exiled and who comes into Babylon expecting to be a slave, but instead God empowers him to rise through the ranks and to, to work within a corrupt system in a pagan land and in a broken culture uh, and God allows him to shine as, as, as a light to those who are around him. Over and over again, we see from Daniel chapter 1 throughout the book of the Bible that Daniel is, is seen as one who is distinguished, is seen as one who is extraordinary. In chapter 5, we see the same language being used in verse 11. It says that there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods. Daniel is being trapped or going to be trapped by enemies because he stands out as distinguished. And what made Daniel distinguished? 
On verse 4, we read that his uh, uh, administrators and, and, and the satraps, those who are in political power, that they sought to, to trap him, uh, but they could not because he was a trustworthy man. It says that there was no negligence in him, that there was no corruption in him. Daniel stood out because he had an extraordinary character. Now, Daniel's 90 years old. In essence, he is a politician, and yet there was no scandal to be found in him. There was no time up scandal on him. There was no affair that can be found on him. There was no uh, uh, bribes taken by him. Uh, There was no money stolen. There was uh, no favoritism played by him. The Bible tells us that he was a man who walked in purity and in character. How hard that must have been to to go through the ranks of, of Persia a pagan land as a Judean exile and to, and to never compromise, but to, to walk in a way that pleases God and for no one to be able to find any charge against them. And I'm telling you today, uh, people of God, that, that God is calling us to do and to be the same. And oftentimes when we look at Daniel, we think maybe he was a superstar, maybe he was sinless, maybe he was like, uh, like, uh, like Jesus in, in a sense that there was no sin in him. I don't think that the author here is getting to the fact that he is sinless. I think he's getting to the fact that, that he has character. And I believe that the text, when it talks about that he had an extraordinary spirit, that the author is actually talking about the Holy Spirit that was, that was upon him. And God's invitation to us all, and part of us having a trap theology, is seeing that God has saved us from darkness, brought us into the marvelous light, so that we, like Daniel, would live and walk in his spirit. You know, for many of us, we spend 40 hours a week at work, or 20 hours a week at work. And a lot of times when we think about our our work life, we Unfortunately, we think about it as something that we have to do in order to pay our bills. We think about it in terms of something that, uh, that we do in order just simply to provide uh, money for our household. But I don't believe that that's the picture that the Bible gives us of, of a view uh, point that we should have of work. Uh, your place of work is your mission field. And I don't care what you do or what your employment is. Um, God has called you to see your work life and your place of employment as a ministry. 40, 50 hours a week with the most many times with the same uh, type of people and group of people is an extraordinary opportunity for you to let your light shine, for you to be on mission uh, for those people who are around you. Daniel lived on mission. In Colossians chapter 3, we read these words about what it means to please the Lord. I believe we have it on the screen. It says this, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Some translations say work wholeheartedly as unto the Lord. 
If you want to stand out amongst the culture, if you want to stand out amongst your, your co-workers, uh, go into work on Monday morning with the attitude that I'm not here uh, to, to first and foremost please an employer or a boss or my employees. I am, I am here working, cultivating beauty in the field that the Lord has called me to. I am here working for him. And the only way that we could do that is if we realize that God has given us a, a gift. And the gift that he has given us is, is the Holy Spirit who is indwelling his people, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. As, as, as Christians, we talk about uh, being Trinitarian, but sometimes I don't think that we're Trinitarian. Uh, sometimes I believe that we think and we focus just on God the Father and on God the Son, and, and we treat the Holy Spirit as if he is the, the shy member of the Trinity. But God has indwelled us with his Spirit, and it is his Spirit that leads us to be extraordinary. Jesus says some shocking words in John chapter 16. Listen to this. He says, this is him preparing his disciples for his ascension. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is to your benefit that I go away because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. Jesus told his disciples as he was preparing to leave, as he was preparing to be crucified, it is better that I not be on the earth with you. This is Emmanuel speaking. This is God himself in the flesh saying, it's better that I leave so that I can send my, my comforter, my helper, my, my advocate who is going to be indwelling his people, the church, and empowering them to do ministry like I did it. And God's invitation to us is to look to the Holy Spirit to empower us to live with excellence to pursue work with excellence, to pursue God with excellence, not, not with an attitude of perfectionism, because an attitude of being a, of perfectionism is, is an attitude that is often just centered on us, but an attitude that says, Lord, you have called me to this place and this season so that I can bring glory to you. And I believe that's why Daniel was able was able to live such a powerful life. I also believe that Daniel was able to live such a powerful life, not only because of the Holy Spirit who was upon him. I wish I had time to give an a Old Testament versus New Testament theology of the Holy Spirit working in, in the life of God's people. But we also see that Daniel lived and he was able to have an extraordinary spirit because he had a, a, a picture of, of the coming glory of the Son of Man. And here's what I mean. In the next chapter, in Daniel chapter 7, we see that Daniel is going to be given a, an amazing vision of, of, of the Son of Man. And this vision is very similar to what we see in Revelation chapter 7 of Jesus. So God allows him to see this uh, apocalyptic vision, to envision the eschaton, the end times, and he sees the glory of Jesus and his return. And he describes it so beautifully and so wonderfully. Go home and read it uh, tonight. And this was early on in Daniel's ministry that he's given this vision. Daniel's now a 90-year-old man living faithful in Persia. But he is living with such a selflessness. 
He is living with such a purity because he has a a vision of what is to come. In Revelation chapter 7, we have a picture of of this. Let's read these words. Revelation chapter 7. I'll read it if we don't have it on the screen. I'm getting a a handshake that says we don't have it. So (laughs) thank you all. Revelation chapter 7. Listen to these words that describes the son of man. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude. Listen to these words from every nation, tribe, people and language, which no one could number. Standing before the throne and before the lamb and they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to the Lord our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and along them the elders and the four living creatures that fell face down before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. And I want to encourage you this week to go home and to slowly read over Revelation chapter 7 and to wrestle with that vision. To silence your phone, to turn off the television, maybe even to turn off your music and to sit with this picture of a vast number of people from every nation, tribe and tongue worshiping Jesus. And I want you to imagine that you are in that vast number of people, billions of people from all centuries, from all languages, from all tribes, from all tongues, fixated on this man who is absolutely beautiful and amazing, whose glory is more glorious than anything you've ever seen. And I want you to feel the weight of that in that moment. How the things that are so big to you and so important to you right now are are forgotten about, how your social media followers don't matter, how what your neighbors think about you don't matter, how the crushing expectations of of parents and friends and, and that you put on yourself in that moment won't matter and that all that will matter is this person that you song about every day and that you pray to often and that you gathered with on Sunday to worship is in front of you. And I want you to remember that feeling of imagining being in that vast number of people and to come back in reality and to start living in light of that day. If you want to live and be distinguished like Daniel, it's going to take a a reality of what everything is working towards, and that is us all worshiping Jesus, forgetting about who we are while basking in his glory that he has redeemed us and set us apart and allowed us to be a part of his people. I believe that Daniel was able to be extraordinary, that they were not able to find any corruption or no charge against him because he lived in light of that vision. Do you? But let me warn you, living in that way is going to make you a marked man or woman. The Bible says that Daniel upset some folk. He upset the, those who were in power and he was a marked man by them. And why was he a marked man? Well, he was a marked man because he was an outsider. He was a Judean exile, a Jewish person in a Persian kingdom. And in essence, they are going to try to trap him, a trap theology, 
They're going to try to trap him because in their mind, because of his ethnicity, he does not belong. In essence, they're going to tell him to go back to where you come from. And so Daniel is going to find himself in a, in a peculiar situation. And this is the way that the kingdom of the world works. The kingdom of the world looks at our differences and looks for an opportunity to divide. The kingdom of the, of the world looks to our, our different ethnic makeups and socioeconomic statuses, and it judges us and it tries to put us in categories because the human heart is always trying to convince us that we are more important than the next person because we often seek to find our identity in foolish things rather than in Christ. And this is why things like what happened in Al Peso, Texas, just yesterday, is able to happen. When a person is able to look at image bearers, our Hispanic brothers and sisters that God has created in his image to receive glory from, and a person is able to go and to, to kill them. And I just want my Hispanic friends to know that we stand with you in solidarity as, as you uh, may be heard today knowing that a, a, a racist set their heart on harming a people, perhaps your people, because of a sick, twisted, fallen perspective. The Bible says that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And these men are going to try to kill Daniel because they feel like he does not belong and he is marked. And we read in verse 6 that in order to trap Daniel, that they go before uh, Darius the king. I say Darius. I'm from the shy. I'm from the hood. That's how we say it. I had a friend whose names was spelled like this. I hear other people say Darius. It's Darius to me, all right? <laughs> Somebody like Darius. That's Darius. No, it's Darius. We'll just call him King D. How about that? All right, King D. And so we see that they're going to go to Darius, who is this new ruler who came into power by force, who actually, uh, history teaches us, killed his predecessor and took over the kingdom. And he's trying to establish himself as, as the king of, of Persia. And they do what was common in Persia. Uh, they go to him and they say, listen, uh, what, what you need to do is to um, have everyone for 30 days worship you as a deity. And this was common when a king would come into power in order to establish his kingdom. No one could worship their gods. And this is a polyistic society where people believe that there were many gods. So for most people, this wasn't a problem. But we see that for Daniel, it was. And they set a trap. And the trap that they set is they know that Daniel publicly prays regularly as a ritual. This is a 90-year-old man who probably was doing this for, for decades at a time. And they know that they can trap him this way if they get this edict, which cannot be reversed, to stand. And so we see that Daniel is a marked man, but we also see that Daniel is a devoted man. This is absolutely Fascinating. Verse 10 says that when Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house and the windows in his upstairs room opened towards Jerusalem. So Daniel hears this edict is signed and he's like, oh, no, mm -mm, not today, Satan. He's like, no, 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 no. 
And I believe the reason that he is responding this way is because he is a faithful Jewish person who worships Yahweh. And he knows these 10 commandments that was given to his forefathers. And one of them, uh, the first one is, is have no other gods before me. And sure, Daniel could have simply said, you know what? I'm not going to worship uh, Darius as, as a deity. I'm simply going to continue to do what I do, but do it behind closed doors. Daniel had every right to do that. And I don't think he would have, uh, he would not have been a, a, a faithless person to do that. In fact, some would have argued that would have just been wise. For 30 days, he's just taking his faith private. And after 30 days, he'll go back to his ritual. But Daniel was a man that had remembered the way God had used him as a 16-year-old boy to take a public stand. And he had some conviction and some dearth to him, some, some character that said, no, 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 no. I'm not about to be pushed around by y'all. I'm going to keep doing what I do. And what does Daniel do? He protests. And how does he protest? He takes a knee. The text says, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God just as he had done before. Daniel is devoted to his God. There's three things we see in this prayer. The first thing we see in this prayer is that, is that Daniel was disciplined. He prayed three times a day. Nowhere in the Jewish scripture does it say that Jews had to pray three times a day, but he prayed three times a day. He disciplined himself. And this wasn't because of legalism. This was because of the second thing. It was because of delight. He prayed three times a day because he delighted in his God. Listen, his life is on a line. This edict has been signed. The king has declared that the person who does not treat him as a deity for the next 30 days would be dinner for the lions. And rather than fear being a treat, he believed that God could make this into a testimony. So he took a knee and he opened the window and he prayed to his God out of delight. The Bible says that, that what was the, the, uh, uh, the crux of his prayer was thanksgiving. His life is on the line and he's giving thanks. This is a man who has spent time with God. This is a man who abides in his father, not because of what he can give him, but because he's come in love with the person he is. He has found his fuel on the immutability of God, on the beauty of God, on the kindness of God, on the mercy of God, on the goodness of God. He is not coming to God as a genie. He's coming to God because he is convinced that God is good. He spent time in his presence. And because he spent time in his presence and because he delighted in God when trouble came, when an attack came, when a trap came, he just did muscle memory, what his muscles knew to do. And that's just to pray and to spend time basking in his glory. And some of our problem is, is that we see God as an as a ATM, as a, as a genie. And the only time we go to the Father is when things are, are bad. And God says, I want a relationship with you. I want to show you that I'm, I'm good so that when trouble comes, you don't have to freak out in fear, but rather you can just pause and praise me on credit because you know that I've got your back. What Daniel did here 
It's not only a picture of of diligence and not only a picture of delight, but it is a picture of defiance. It is a picture that says to Satan, I am not scared of you. I know that you go around like a roaring lion seeking whom you may devour. But in my presence, because I'm in God's presence, you are as a roaring lion. You're not a roaring lion. You're nothing but a little pussycat. Purr. Perhaps God's invitation for us today is to stop fearing what Satan might do and start focusing on what God can do. Daniel finds himself in a situation and Darius is now conflicted. What do I do? He allowed uh, Daniel to rise through the ranks once again under The third king that Daniel has had to serve, and under each king, it is implied that that he has to rise back to power. And he has rised back to power and come back to the top. And this is a 90-year-old, very humble man. And Darius has come to love this man, and he sees what has happened here. And he cannot go back on his word because if he goes back on his word, he will start off his rule in Persia as being seen as a weak king who is not strong enough to enact justice. And so the text tells us that he is very, very conflicted. Verse 15, then these men went together and said to the king, you know, your majesty, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you continually serve, continue. There was something about his walk. Continually served. There was something about his walk that allowed this This pagan man who history records was was in many ways a genius and a great leader to say this God who you continually serve. And not multiple gods like everyone in this kingdom, but this one God whom you continually serve rescue you. And the Bible says a stone was brought and, and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. And the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and he could not sleep. So here we see that Darius is conflicted. He doesn't know what to do. He has experienced the grace and goodness of God in the presence of of Daniel, but he feels trapped. A lot of times when we talk about this story, we see this story as Daniel in the lion's den, but really, the more and more I read this story, the more I'm convinced that this is not a story about Daniel's in the lion's den. This is a story about Daniel's in the angel's den. Verse 21 says that, then Daniel spoke with the king, may the king live forever. The king comes back early in the morning, hastily to see if Daniel's okay. And he says, my God sent his angel and shut the mouths, the lion's mouths, and they hadn't harmed me for I was found innocent before him and also before you, your majesty, I have done no harm. An angel appears in his den, shuts the mouth of the lion, and here Daniel is, in a situation that should have 
been death. It should have been a terror to him. He's safe. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Daniel, man, what did you do that night? Like, did you nap? Were you a little on edge? <laughs> like, did you and the angel have a conversation? What did y'all talk about? I just can't wait to hear. Let me give you a trap theology real quick. Theology of the trap. When you find yourself trapped in a situation that seems bleak, in a marriage that seems devastating, with emotions that seem overwhelming, with grief that seems unbearable, with guilt that seems like you'll never overcome it, when you feel like Satan has trapped you, when a friend has betrayed you, what do you do? Really quick. First, this text teaches us to trust in God. But this trust in God, it needs to be cultivated before the trap comes. What allowed Daniel to stand firm again was that he had a relationship with the living God. This was not pointless religion. This was not mindless religion. This was a relationship. Christianity is not about uh, just doing things religiously for the sake of checking a box off or for the sake of, 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 of earning your, your place before God. It is actually the opposite. The Bible teaches us that Christ earned our place before God with his death, burial, and resurrection, that we are made righteous through his works, not through ours. Christianity is about how God has saved us so that we can be in an intimate relationship with him. So that when trouble comes, we can, we can, we can trust him. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean to your own understanding. Listen to this. In all your ways, acknowledge him. <laughs> in all of your situations, acknowledge him. Not, not in the situations where you feel like you, you need him, but all the time, continuously acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. A trap theology is one that is cultivating a relationship with them. Yesterday, I did a wedding uh, with uh, two uh, uh, members of ours, and it was a beautiful wedding, had a wonderful time. But I talked in that wedding uh, from John chapter 2 and how Jesus turned water into wine. And I made the point that water would not have been able to be turned to wine and that this family would have had shame on them forever because wine was a symbol of joy for the Jewish people. And at a wedding, you can run out of anything, right? You can run out of mac and cheese. You can run out of rolls. The one thing you were not to run out of was wine because it was a symbolic thing that pointed to joy that Yahweh brings. But they had Jesus at the party, <laughs> So that when trouble came, they were all ready. Jesus was able to work. And what I'm saying is cultivate a relationship with Jesus so that when the trap comes, that muscle memory kicks in. And rather than freak out and run to, to false gods and, and other idols, you're able to abide in him. Second, a trap theology says trust in God anchors oneself in the promises of God. Really quick. My time is drawing near. We see that Daniel does something that's amazing in his text. The Bible says that he prayed 
But what's interesting is how he prayed. He prayed towards Jerusalem. Now, the question must be asked, why did he pray towards Jerusalem? He prayed towards Jerusalem uh, because he remembered the promises of God. The prophet Jeremiah and other, uh, a few other prophets were preaching during the time of the exile that God would restore his people, that God would restore Jerusalem. So what Daniel did every time he prayed is he found the direction in which Jerusalem was set and he, he, he prayed towards that direction as a reminder of God's promises, as a reminder of God's faithfulness, as a reminder that God said that he was going to restore his people and that he believed that he was going to restore his people. And what makes this passage absolutely fascinating and amazing is that that Daniel has been an exile for 90 years. For 90 years. It could have been easy for Daniel to give up hope But he did not give up hope because he reminded himself daily when he prayed of God's faithfulness. And he says, no matter how bleak the situation looks, no matter how pagan Persian looks, no matter how many of my people have turned their back on God and is now worshiping the gods of this people, I believe that God is going to bring restoration. And God is calling you, a trap theology said, to keep your mind stayed on him. So Ephesians, Philippians chapter 4 tells us to pray prayers of thanksgiving and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and his promises. Could you imagine being Daniel? I mean, looking around and like, why am I the only person that's being thrown in the, in the lion's den? Is no one else in Persia going to stand up to this and say, no, you're not my deity? I mean, where's, where's Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Maybe they went home to be with the Lord, or maybe they took a different method. But he could have felt alone, but he didn't because he found his, his anchor in the promises of God. A trap theology says trust in God focuses on pleasing him, not potential outcomes. If your focus is on what might happen when times get Hard, and if it's driven by fear rather than faith and trust in God, you will waver when this culture presses in on you. God's invitation for you is not to fixate on what might happen, but rather to fixate on who He is and who He has called you to be. And finally, a trap theology says that Jesus, Jesus is better. Okay, verse 16, so the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. Then the king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. Verse 17 is, is beautiful. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. I'm closing my Bible. It's time for us to go. But did you see it? Did y'all see what happened? Did did you see what the text said? Daniel was put in the lion's den, and a stone was rolled over it. And a seal was placed on that stone. Let me help you out. There was a man named Jesus who disrupted Rome because of his faithfulness to God, who came from heaven to earth 
to save us from God's wrath. And the Bible says that this man named Jesus, he lived a sinless life. And that Jesus was like Daniel, but even better. See, Daniel went into the lion's den to face death. And he was delivered from having to taste death from the lion. But Jesus went into a tomb because he embraced death. And he allowed the lion of death to bite him so that you and I can go free and not have to face death. See, see, Daniel went into the lion's den, but he wasn't perfect. Jesus went into the lion's den as one who was perfect. And they rolled the tomb over Daniel's grave, what they thought would be his grave. Just as they rolled the tomb over Jesus's grave, but it wasn't his grave. The Bible says that Jesus got up on the third day with all power and that the tomb was rolled away by an angel. And he declared all power is given to me on heaven and on earth. And he said, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Jesus is better than Daniel. He has ultimately freed us from the biggest and baddest trap that there is, and that is death. And he has given us eternal life as we place our faith and trust in him. Whatever trap you may find yourself in today, remember that Jesus is better. Remember that a trap theology says that God specializes in delivering his devoted children from what appears to be destruction. And every Sunday we gather together to take a meal called communion. And this meal reminds us of what I just proclaimed to you. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and declared that this bread represented his body. He took wine and drank it and declared that the wine represented or was his blood, which was shed for you and me. And every Sunday here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. And we do this in remembrance of him setting our eyes on his faithfulness in the past, but also on his promise to return and on this future meal that we'll have with him in glory. Those of you who are not Christians, we're going to ask you not to partake in this meal. Those of you who are Christians, we're going to ask you uh, to partake in this meal unless you are harboring a bitterness towards another brother and sister in Christ and find yourself in a, in a place of not, not wanting to work that out with the Lord. The Bible says that it's better not for you to partake that meal at that time, least you heap on yourself a God's judgment. Those of you in the front, you come to the front. Those in the back, you go to the back. Gluten-free communion is to my left. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are faithful and that you are good. And I thank you for uh, what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. And that Jesus truly is better. That Daniel is not the one that we look to in awe, but it is your son who can empower us uh, to live faithfully like Daniel. And that over his 90 years of life, that really... All we have is four uh, chapters that are, are pointing uh, to uh, extraordinary ways that you used him. But that most of his life was mundane and unseen and him being overlooked and just being faithful. And I pray that for our people that we would just be faithful 
and that we remind ourselves that the things that we often fixate on or find our identity on on this side of heaven one day when we're in the midst of a sea of people will be forgotten and seem like crumbs. Help us to live for that day. In Christ's name, amen.